Well, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, where is God in this changing world? Is he in control? Is he reliable? Can I trust him to do what he's called me to do in this world which is so often hostile and so often out of control? These kind of questions come to us, don't they, when we start to think about the world in which we live. It's a world full of wars and rumors of wars. It's a world where political upheavals take place with regular monotony. A world where the unexpected takes place, both in our own lives and in the lives of nations. And people are asking, where is God in all of this? Just after the South Asian tsunami on December the 26th, 2004, which killed at least 225,000 people, a commentator in the Glasgow Herald wrote this. He said, God, if there is a God, should be ashamed of himself. The sheer enormity of the Asian tsunami disaster, the death, the destruction, and the havoc it wreaked, the scale of the misery it caused, must surely test the faith of even the firmest believer. I hope I'm right that there is no God, for if there were, then he'd have to shoulder the blame. In my book, he would be as guilty as sin, and I'd want nothing to do with him. But just as the headline raises questions about God's involvement in our world, so does personal tragedy. Perhaps even more so because we often suffer alone with our anxieties, our questions, our sicknesses, and our difficulties. Even the Christian is tempted to ask, where is God? Is he really in control? Is he trustworthy? Does he keep his promises? Is he even able to keep his promises? Could I trust him even though I really don't understand what's going on? Or is the whole idea of trusting God in adversity just some nice Christian platitude that doesn't really stand up under the difficult circumstances of life? Well, the substance of that remarkable prayer that Tanya just read from Acts 4, which I simply want to open up this morning and try and learn from, the substance of it is what A.W. Pink has called a fact that is evidenced on every page of Scripture. He writes in his classic book on the sovereignty of God, sovereignty characterizes the whole being of God. He is sovereign in all of his attributes. He is sovereign in the exercise of his power. His power is exercised as he wills, when he wills, where he wills. This fact is evidenced on every page of Scripture. It is the conviction that God is absolutely and utterly sovereign in his universe, that he reigns without rival on his throne of great glory and majesty and sovereignty, that he is sovereign over the entire world and everything that happens within it, that he is never hapless, never hopeless, never frustrated, never at a loss, that he has never abdicated and will never ever abdicate his sovereign control over the affairs of men and women, presidents and kings, nations and countries, down through history, from the beginning of creation until the return 
and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That there is no area, no part of society, no sphere of life in which that sovereign control is not ever exercised. This is how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. God has absolute sovereignty over all things to do by them and for them or upon them whatever he pleases. I love the sovereignty of God. I love to join with the psalmist when he exalts in God's unparalleled power. Psalm 21:13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. I love to join him in God's house when he says in Psalm 63, 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And again in Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. I bow before the God who says in Psalm 46, 9 to 10, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. I join with a restored Nebuchadnezzar in acknowledging God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And I love to declare with the Apostle Paul that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And so our prayer this morning begins in verse 24 with what the ESV translates as the phrase, Sovereign Lord. You see, the conviction that they are expressing in that phrase is that God is on the throne. And in this very dark and difficult time of the very earliest stage of church history, they are absolutely convinced that God reigns supreme. And that the government of this universe does not rest on the shoulders of great or minor officials, whether in Rome or Russia, China or Canada, America or Australia, but on the shoulders of the sovereign Lord. And all authority and power and majesty and glory belong solely and utterly to him and no other. And so the rest of the prayer is really just an expansion, almost an unpacking of the content of that name that they give to God. And they address him as sovereign Lord in at least four ways. There's more, but I'm going to limit myself to four key areas in which they declare the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. The first one is, is that they declare his sovereignty over creation. The sovereignty of God in creation. At the beginning of Acts chapter 4, as we read, we find the two apostles, Peter and John, preaching to a large crowd. And this crowd had gathered because of the miraculous healing of a man who used to sit begging outside the temple gates. For many years, he had sat there, lame, unable to walk, carried there by his friends, begging for whatever people would give him. 
And this, of course, did not impress the temple authorities who immediately had the two apostles arrested and thrown into prison. Well, the next day a hearing was held, and finding no basis on which to charge Peter and John, we read that the authorities released them, charging them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, the released apostles make their way back uh, to their friends, and their first action is to pray to God. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And now notice their response. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. What a strange way to begin their prayer. Here you find these apostles coming from the place where the authorities are threatening them. And they're told they must stop preaching in the name of Jesus, 4 verse 17. And they go into the presence of God. And they lift up their voices in prayer. And they begin to recollect how God created the universe. But you see, this is precisely where they discovered that you can be persuaded of God's unlimited power wherever you look in this world. Calvin comments in his sermon on this passage. He says, why? Why do they at this point invoke the creation of the world? They do it to strengthen themselves in the power of God and in the confidence that his power is sufficient to sustain them in the presence of every danger. So here you have these early Christians, and they're in the midst of this threatening situation. And they're saying to God, Sovereign Lord, it's you who made this universe that we live in. The heavens and, and the seas and the earth and the heavens and all that's in it. They're the work of your hands. Your very word is the power by which they were created. And these men who are our enemies, who are threatening us. They owe their very life's breath to you. It's you that created them. It's you that formed them. And now, Lord, if you are able to do this greater thing, then surely we can trust you with this lesser thing that we're asking. You see, this argument from the, the greater thing that God's done to the lesser thing that we're asking for is one of the great arguments of Scripture to persuade us of the trustworthiness and the sovereignty and the power of God. Notice firstly how it's used frequently in the Bible as an encouragement by God's people as they plead with God. Consider, for example, the prayer of Jeremiah in chapter 32 and listen to what Jeremiah says. And while you're doing that, Sarah, could you please grab me a glass of water? <laughs> he says, Ah, sovereign Lord, behold, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Conclusion, nothing is too difficult for you. So where does Jeremiah get his confidence from? Well, he gets it from creation, 
from the fact that God has, has formed and created the glories of the universe. He goes out into the night sky and he views the stars there. And he knows that it's God who has put each one in place. He sees the mountains in all of their majesty. And he says, it's my heavenly father who formed and who made these. He sees the intricacy, the complexity, the amazing detail of the tiniest flower that's here for a day or two and then it's gone. It's blown away. And he says, it is God, my Savior, who has formed these. And nothing, absolutely nothing, is too difficult for you. But notice it's not just used by people as they argue with God, but it's also used by God as he persuades his children to trust in him. Recall for a moment the beginning of Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah, Isaiah 40. And God comes to his people to encourage them in their disconsolate state. When they're cast down and, and discouraged, how does God persuade them to trust him? Well, listen to what God says. He says, to whom will you compare me that I should be like them, says the Holy One, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Answer, I did. Verse 26b. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Thank you, Sarah. If, if Isaiah was stunned by the power of God to create and sustain and to name every star in heaven that he could see, what would Isaiah's worship be today if he was shown that the nearest of these stars, Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri, are 42.6 trillion kilometers away? That's 4.37 light years away. And what would his worship be if, if he knew that what he was seeing in the night sky was just a tiny patch of our galaxy, which has in it one billion stars, and beyond our galaxy are two trillion galaxies. And so using the Milky Way as our model, we can multiply the number of stars in our galaxy, 100 billion by the number of galaxies in our universe, two trillion, and the answer is absolutely astounding. There are approximately two billion trillion stars in the universe. That's 200 quintillion stars. And our sun is one of the smallest of them. Yeah. That's okay. Do you want to just zoom ahead, Joy? That's okay. Zoom ahead. You're okay. Is it, st is it stalled? You've just gone ahead too much, so go back a bit, sorry. To Isaiah, 24, Isaiah 40, 27 to 28. Is it, has, it, has it frozen? Yep. That's it. Thank you. You're there now. 
You're okay. So what is this universe then but a lavish demonstration of the incredible, incomparable, unimaginable exuberance and wisdom and knowledge and power and greatness and sovereignty of God? What a God this must be. And therefore the Lord says to them in verses 27 to 28, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? God is almost playing with them, I think. Do you not know? Have you not heard who made the heavens and the earth? Well, just in case, let me give you a little reminder. Verse 28b. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. That's who it is. And here comes the good news. Verse 29. He is the one who gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. You see, he's able to do that because he is the sovereign Lord of creation. So that's the first thing we notice in their prayer. God is absolutely sovereign over creation. And therefore, he's sovereign over every situation in our lives. The second thing we notice is this. Not only is he sovereign over creation, but he's also sovereign over all of history. And so we see that he is the sovereign Lord of history. Verses 25 to 26. And in verses 25 to 26, they are quoting from Psalm chapter 2. And Psalm chapter 2 describes the revolt of the nations against the Lord and his Messiah. And this psalm, it grew out of the crowning of a new king in Israel, probably David. And it describes the anointing and the accession of the king to the throne. And how the nations all around about set themselves against the one who was anointing his king and bring him to his throne. And this rebellion, the psalmist says, is a rebellion against the Lord and his anointed one. And they see, they look back at the psalm and they see a picture that is comparable to the events that are taking place in their own time. The events that are taking place just a few, a few years earlier, just a, or even less, with the people's rebellion against God's Messiah or Christ or anointed one. And what they're recognizing here is what the psalmist recognized, that this was a most extraordinary, foolish thing for all of the nations to be setting themselves against such a God as this. Because before him, they're like tiny, minute, insignificant little creatures. And for that reason, says the psalmist, the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs at their utter folly. He will have them in derision. Because it's the most extraordinary folly and delusion for humans, and no matter how great in numbers, to imagine that they could rebel against such a God as this without being swept aside by his mighty arm and outstretched hand. And so their prayer continues in verse 25 of Acts 4. Sovereign Lord, they pray, who through the mouth of our servant David 
our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Why? Because the one who is in sovereign control of history must, of course, be in sovereign control of the period of time that they are presently in. It is the same God who dealt with his enemies back in the day that the psalmist is referring to. And so they're reaching back into history and they're saying, here is the God with whom we have to do. This is the God who called us. This is the God who has set us here. This is the God who has given us the commission to go out into the world and to preach the gospel. And he is the sovereign Lord of history. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, when a report came to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, informing him that this huge army is on the way from Aram. And Jehoshaphat is just full of, full of fear. And you know what he does? 2 Chronicles 20 verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judea. And he gathered all of Judah together to seek the Lord. And then we read in verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, and he said, and listen to how he prays. It's a model for us. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Sovereign Lord, you rule over all the nations of the kingdoms. In your hand are power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you. Well, how do we know that, Lord? Well, notice how he proceeds in his prayer, verse 7. Did you not our God? And here comes Jehoshaphat's recollection of history. Did you not our God drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. You see, he's reciting history, of course, before God. And the reason is that he's saying to God, you, O God, you're the one that did this in the past. You are from everlasting to everlasting the same. The years do not change you. You are the same God of that generation. Lord, they say, do it again. Do it again in our time. For you are the sovereign Lord of history. And we see it not just in the, the broad picture of the history of the nations. We also see it in personal history. And one of the greatest examples of this in the whole of Scripture is in the life of Joseph. And I'll just mention it in passing and I encourage you to read the story um, at home. The message that comes to me as I read the story of Joseph's rise and fall in Egypt, is this. The evil intentions of humans cannot frustrate the sovereign decree of God. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Pot of his wife slandered him into the dungeon. Pharaoh's butler forgot him for two years. And where was God in all of the sin and misery and neglect? Well, Joseph answers in Genesis 48, 7 to 8 and 50 verse 20. And here he says the most beautiful thing to his guilty brothers. Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, 
you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, whose sovereign hand was upon my life during all those years, thrown into a pit, left to die, apparently abandoned in Egypt to the the wickedness of people like Potiphar's wife. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And you see, he's not just saying that God took this bad situation and then turned it into something good. No. What he's saying is that right from the very beginning, even as Joseph's brother's intentions toward him were for evil, at the very same time, in and through and under and over their actions, God was intending something good. The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives, whatever they are, they may be the work of evil, but that evil is firmly held and directed by the sovereign hand of God. And so we see that he is the sovereign Lord over creation. We see that he's the sovereign Lord over all of history, including our own personal histories. And thirdly, I want you to see that he is the sovereign Lord of redemption. Verses 27 and 28. For truly they say, and now we're brought to another phase of history. But this time it is the history of redemption. It's recent history for them. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now I want you to see this beautiful application of the past history of God's workings to their own present situation. These early believers are applying the message of the psalm to their own situation as they identify their adversaries as Herod and Pilate, the Romans and the Jews. These enemies, you see, they've ganged up upon Jesus and they even crucified him. They killed our king. Ah, but what was really happening? Verse 28. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. And here it comes. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So who really killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Roman soldiers? Was it the religious leaders? Was it the Roman governor Pontius Pilate? Well, yes, but not ultimately was it. Who really was behind the killing of Jesus? Who ultimately had him killed? Answer, God the Father was the ultimate cause of his own son's death. Isaiah 53 verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again in verse 10, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to death, to grief. You see, Jesus was not swept away by the wrath of uncontrolled men. He was bruised by his father. Or as the apostle Peter puts it only two chapters earlier in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, the terrible truth is that the Father delivered him up for, for our sins. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the soldiers, the Jewish crowds, they lifted up their hand to rebel against the Most High God, only to find that their rebellion was unwittingly service in the sovereign designs of God. You see, the appalling death of Christ was ultimately the will and the work of God the Father. You see, the simple fact was this. This is the watershed of history. This is the darkest hour in history. You cannot imagine a darker hour. Why God even covered over the sun and black darkness covered over the face of the earth at that moment. And this darkness was to symbolize that judgment was coming down upon the head of the Holy Son of God. But it was also a fitting climactic atmosphere for this whole event to take place in. This was history's darkest hour. And you might ask, is there anything from the whole realm of light that can be brought out of this darkness? Is there any hope in it? Can any good come out of it? Well, as Calvin points out, this is one of the miracles of God that he brings light out of darkness. You see, the glorious thing is, not only was light brought out of darkness, but the salvation of all of God's people was being wrought. The joy that we experience in Christ, the glory of our salvation was being wrought in that deep darkness of the day of redemption. And it was the sovereign Lord who was in control of it. And if that same sovereign God was working out our redemption in the deep darkness of that day, then surely, say the apostles, surely he, he can bring something good out of our dark hour, something glorious out of our dark situation. And this is what the apostles are blessed and comforted by. For he is absolutely and utterly sovereign over the work of redemption. And therefore he is the sovereign Lord over every other situation. And it was his power and his authority and his might and his majesty that was active on that day. But here's the last thing. So he is sovereign over creation. He is absolutely sovereign over history. He is sovereign over redemption. And therefore, finally, he is sovereign over our present situation. You see, in view of all that's been said so far, as the church recollect how God is sovereign over creation, then sovereign over history, and then especially sovereign over redemptive history. They are now confident 
that God is sovereign over their present situation. Let's read verses 29 to 31. And now, and now, Lord, in light of all that we've said so far, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you notice how they exhibit their confidence now? Now, Lord, they say, look at their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. In other words, they say, we have no power. We have no might against this great company that comes against us. But our eyes are upon you. And we believe that there is nothing too difficult for you, Lord. Nothing too hard for the Lord. And so with a gracious, biblical, self-humbling, they say, Lord, help us. Lord, enable us. You see, this prayer for divine enabling is nothing but the open admission. Without God, we are nothing and we can do nothing. It is the prayer of those who do not feel resourceful or sufficient or able in themselves, but instead pour themselves out in prayer to the God who alone is all sufficient, all resourceful, all powerful, and all sovereign. And so they pray, Lord, enable us. Lord, help us. Verse 29, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. You see, this is the type of praying that God calls for from his people. This is the type of praying that just delights the heart of God. Why? Because such praying expresses those affections of the heart which call attention to our insufficiency and God's all-sufficiency, our poverty and God's mercy, our weakness and God's majesty, our frailty and God's sovereignty. And so we need to come to him holding up the empty cup of prayer and asking him to demonstrate the riches of his glory, and the reaches of his sovereignty by filling it. Lord, enable us, we pray. You see, the reason why the doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God is so precious to me, why I love it so much, is because we know that God's great desire is to show mercy and kindness, and grace to those who trust him. Jeremiah 32, 40 to 41. God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. You see, God's sovereignty means that his plans 
and his purposes toward us cannot ever be frustrated. Nothing, absolutely nothing, befalls those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Except what is for our deepest good and his highest glory. And for this reason, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which you lay your head. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. And so where was God during the Asian tsunami that we began by talking about? Where was God during the COVID pandemic? Where is God during the war in Ukraine and the many other wars and disasters, tragedies and pandemics that are ravaging communities right across this planet at the moment? Where is God? And where is God concerning the adversities and difficulties, frustrations and discouragements in my own personal life? Where is God? Well, the answer is where he's always been and always will be. God is on his throne of great glory and majesty, and he's working out all things, all things for the glory of his name and for the ultimate good of his people. Let's come to him in prayer. Sovereign Lord, you made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth and take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Sovereign Lord, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Yet, Sovereign Lord, they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. And so now, Lord, we pray, consider the great task before us in Geelong, Australia and beyond, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and, and to perform wonderfully through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Revive your church and bring many to a saving knowledge of your servant, Jesus Christ. You've done it in the past, Lord. Do it again. For you are the sovereign Lord of creation. You are the sovereign Lord of history. You are the sovereign Lord of redemption. You are the sovereign Lord of the present. You are the sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen.